Well, let's get into it this morning. It's great to have you here again. Do you need to do some theological calisthenics? Do you remember? Yeah, go on, you can do it. Just get your mind going. He became this and did that for us. Well, back on Monday morning, I talked about how sin is the great relationship wrecker. We ignore God's word and his way because we think we know best. But as a consequence, we end up damaging or destroying our relationships. We destroy others, even we damage and destroy ourselves. The New Testament tells us that Jesus, God incarnate, was tempted in every way as we are, but was without sin. And I've put some Bible references there at the top of page 34 that you can chase up later. Jesus had to be without sin, as we saw yesterday, to be our representative and substitute. And because he was without sin, the Bible encourages us to imitate Jesus' example. Jesus shows us what it means to live a life led by the Spirit and no longer in the flesh. This morning we're thinking about how Jesus reshapes our relationship with our earthly family. You might remember that passage we looked at on Monday when we looked at Mark 3, where Jesus' mother and brothers come to take him home. But when he was told they were asking for him, Jesus' provocative response was to point to his disciples sitting around him and say, here are my mother and my brother. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And as I said on Monday, that was and is still incredibly offensive thing to say. Does Jesus really disregard his earthly family like that? Does he not care about them? Well, have a look at the passage there on page 34, John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. This is an astounding passage, recording something Jesus did while he was hanging on the cross, dying for the sins of the world. John records what happened. He writes, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mum there, and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus is resolute in obedience to his heavenly Father. He has had multiple opportunities to walk away from this moment. But he's devoted in love both to his heavenly Father and to us. And so he will not be tempted away from this moment, no matter how awful and terrifying. This is what he came to do, to offer his life as a ransom for many, to condemn sin in his own flesh to be sin for us. And yet, at that very same moment, enduring all of his father's wrath against sin, he takes a moment to provide for his mum. Jesus was the oldest sibling in his family. In the culture of the day, it was expected that he would care for his mum, especially since it seems Mary was probably a widow by this point. So he says to his mum, who's standing there watching her son die, but who's standing there next to John, who calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, Mum, here's the person who'll look after you. And to John, 
John, love her like your own mother. And John clearly knew what Jesus was asking because he says, from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. What an amazing example of Jesus' kingdom-focused love for his earthly family. I say kingdom-focused love because Jesus didn't come down from the cross at that point and say, sorry world, I can't go through with this, I realise I need to look after my mum. He stayed kingdom-focused. His ultimate priority was on loving obedience to his heavenly Father's will. But at the same time, that kingdom focus still meant he made time to provide for his earthly family, even as he died to save you and me. And when we read the rest of the New Testament, we see that being part of Jesus' new family does not mean we care nothing about our earthly family anymore. Rather... If I want to summarise today into sort of one sentence, being in Christ transforms and reshapes our love for our earthly family. Being in Christ transforms and reshapes our love for our earthly family. That's what we're going to focus on this morning. In particular, two relationships within our earthly families. I'd love to talk about parenting because I've got lots of ideas on that from the scripture. We don't have any time to talk about that today. We're going to talk about how does being in Christ reshape my relationship with my earthly parents, what I've called in Christ childing, being a child. Second, how does being in Christ reshape how I think about marriage, what I've called in Christ marrying. So let's start with in Christ childing. The New Testament is very clear, if you're in Christ, that is if you're following Jesus and put your faith in Him, then God expects you to honour your parents. In the passage there on page 34 from Ephesians 5 and 6, Paul encourages the Christians to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and then he explains what that looks like in our relationship with our parents. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Just looking at those two verses there, already twice Paul has connected honouring our parents to our relationship with Jesus. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that is because we want to honour Jesus and live his way. And what this mutual submission looks like for us as children is that we obey our parents. But we choose to obey them because we are in the Lord, is what he says. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. We obey them because we're actually seeking to obey the Lord Jesus. Paul then goes back to the Ten Commandments as the foundation for this claim that obeying your parents is the right thing to do under God. You can see there in verse 2, Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Honouring our parents through our obedience to them is actually a way of being obedient to God and honouring Jesus. And it's not just parents, it's grandparents as well. You can see what Paul says to Timothy about the older widows in the church in 1 Timothy 5, they're on the top of the next page. He writes there to Timothy, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family, and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 
So it's not just about obeying your parents. We honour our parents and grandparents by caring for them, by providing for them. As Paul says, repaying them for the way they have provided for us. And that's what, exactly what Jesus was doing on the cross, wasn't it, for his mum, Mary, even as he was dying there for the sins of the world. He was putting his faith in his heavenly Father into practice by making sure his mum would be looked after. Now, depending on your cultural background, all of this may be very obvious. Or if you come from a very Western individualistic mindset, like me, this might demand a radical rethink of the way you relate to your parents. Um, some of our LRLR workers here have known me for a long time. Ross and Lindell, who um, you, you might have met, and we saw Ross on the video interview the other day. They've known me for a very long time, since I was a, a little boy, in fact. They know my parents well. Ross actually said to me at lunch the other day or something, he said, so do you ever talk to your mum and dad? Uh, if you've moved out of home, or one day when you move out of home and you come from an individualistic Western mind, that question might be a very pointed question. Because immediately I thought, yeah, you know what? I don't ring my parents enough. I know they pray for me every day. Every day. And I know they're praying for this week because they've been asking about it for months. How's annual conference looking? They're praying for you this week. How often do I ring them? So depending on your cultural background, honouring your parents and grandparents might be a bit of a shock. See, we know looking after kids is costly. As a parent, it costs you time and energy and money. And Well, guess what? Honouring your parents is also costly. It will cost you time and energy and money. And in a deeply individualistic culture, it catches us by surprise that I might be expected to sacrifice time, energy and money to honour my parents. I know that if I have kids, I'll have to sacrifice to look after them. But it surprises me as a kid that I might have to expect to sacrifice things to honour my parents, to provide for them. But according to 1 Timothy 5, it pleases God that I seek to repay my parents and grandparents for how they've looked after me. But there's more to say on this point about honouring parents. Jesus sets us the example of honouring his earthly family without letting his earthly family become ultimate. Yes, Jesus provided for his mum, but he didn't let that trump over his primary commitment to his heavenly father. So there are times when the way to honour your parents is to disobey them. Parents who maybe insist on you living together before you get married. Parents who encourage you to cover up wrongdoing or to keep secret bad things that are happening. You don't honour Jesus and you don't honour your parents by obeying them in those situations. You actually dishonour them by following them into evil and you dishonour Jesus. Luke pulls together a few interactions Jesus had with potential followers, all of which involved earthly family. They're there in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62. Just as an example, look at verse 59. 
Jesus said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Observing the customary funeral rites was an expected way of honouring your parents, yet Jesus is clearly saying the needs of the kingdom of God outweigh even the needs of your dead parent. So it is not right to say, Jesus wants me to honour and obey my parents, so everything else has to fit around that foundation. That's not the way to think. Lots of people do make decisions like that. That's not what Jesus is modelling or teaching. The kingdom of God comes first. So living to please God in his kingdom means I take his command to honour my parents seriously, but I don't let that become ultimate. Jesus and his kingdom come first. Now, if you've come from a family where family is the primary allegiance, then moving your earthly family out of the primary place in your life, that will not be popular with your family. In fact, it might put you in significant conflict with your earthly family. For some, it will mean being cut off from your family entirely. But Jesus has a word of encouragement for us, a reminder, as we saw on Monday, that when you turn to Jesus, you are adopted into his big family. Have a look at Mark chapter 10, verses 28 to 30, there on page 35. Then Jesus spoke up, sorry, then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you, Jesus. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So what we lose because of Jesus, as painful as that may be, that is outweighed a hundredfold by the new family we find in him. So, because you... Because of your Christian faith, you were kicked out of home and have nowhere to stay. You've got a hundred homes to sleep in amongst your sisters and brothers in Christ. Your earthly family disown you. They want nothing to do with you or even just think you're stupid for being a Christian. You've got hundreds of sisters and brothers and mothers and uncles and aunts in Christ who will love you and encourage you and embrace you. You've given up your job or had it taken from you because you're a Christian. You've got hundreds of sisters and brothers in Christ who will share what God has given them with you. Jesus is not promising here to add two zeros to your personal bank account. That'd be nice, two zeros added. He is promising, though, that through your sisters and brothers in Christ, you will have access to all that you need, abundantly more than what you lost. So what does in Christ childing look like? Out of reverence for Jesus... We seek to honour our earthly parents. We keep our focus on Jesus and his kingdom so we don't let our earthly family become ultimate. But following Jesus' example, we embrace a kingdom-focused love for our earthly parents. And we rejoice in the big new family we have in Christ through which Jesus provides for all of our needs. But what does this look like on the ground? How do we keep a kingdom-focused love on Jesus while still... Maybe our earthly parents might expect something different. Well, Ben Lim's going to share with us a few of his thoughts on what honouring our parents looks like when when we get it right 
and when we get it wrong. So I'll invite Ben up. Thank you, EU Focus. I am one of the senior staff working with um, EU Focus. And uh, yeah, Musa inspired me last night. If you do want to find out more about EU Focus, page 92 of your booklets. Ah, so getting this right and getting it wrong. Now, I think the first thing I need to say here is I think my parents would think this is highly ironic, me talking about getting on in your parents' right. They'd probably agree that, you know, I can, I'm well qualified to speak on getting it wrong. But anyway, I, I have spent some time with international students or also in the Chinese church where I grew up and Anglican churches I've been at since. And I yeah, have seen some ways uh, that we get this right and get it wrong. Uh, now, as Rowan said, a culture does influence what this looks like. And so we are a diverse community here, you know, local and international students, different ethnic family backgrounds. So not everything I say will resonate with everyone. But as we're a family in Christ, uh, yeah, I do hope you'll pay attention so that we can really help one another in this area, grow in this area and honour Jesus by honouring our parents, uh, even in different cultural backgrounds. Uh, so getting it right. Well, Rowan said that honouring parents is costly. So let me tell you about a married couple that I know. Um, they're Christians, and I think in many ways they get this right. Uh, we'll call them Tracy and Mike. They're real people, but uh, these are not their real names. Uh, Mike's dad has a chronic illness, uh, so he needs a lot of ongoing care. So Mike and Tracy decided to help Mike's mum that they would move in to live with Mike's parents uh, to help his mum care for his dad. Now, in many ways, this is costly for Mike and Tracy. Uh, they've grown up in Australia. Uh, Mike's parents grew up in Hong Kong. Uh, so like me, you know, Tracy and Mike are what we call bananas. You know, they're yellow on the outside, uh, but quite white on the inside. Uh, so living with Mike's parents, I think it's not always easy. Uh, perhaps especially for Tracy. But they decided it was how they could honour Mike's parents and so honour Jesus. Now, Tracy and Mike also recently uh, sold and, and bought a house. Now, in choosing that house that they would buy, they again put Mike's parents' needs uh, into that equation. Uh, they planned, you know, they're planning for the future possibility that Mike's parents might be living with them in that house. Uh, so it has a lift for Mike's dad to help him get around. It's, it's nearby in a familiar neighbourhood, which also happens to be close to Tracy's parents too. And that's good as, as they all get older. But that does mean that it's in an expensive part of Sydney. And, you know, with a lift, it, it's costly. Honouring parents is costly. Now, maybe you couldn't imagine that. <laughs> Or you couldn't imagine anything worse, you know, living with your in-laws or perhaps living with your parents. But maybe, whether you marry or not, maybe in the power of God's Spirit, maybe there are costs that you could bear to honour Jesus by honouring your parents. Well, now getting it wrong. Uh, now, you, <laughs> I imagine you probably only need about two seconds, if that, 
of self-reflection here to, to think of your own personal examples of how we can get this wrong. And I think if, if your parents are culturally different from you, like mine, like I was born in Australia, my parents are from Malaysia, uh, then I think there are extra challenges here. Uh, just, you know, by the way, if, if your parents are kind of more Asian than you, uh, I'm running an elective today and tomorrow afternoon uh, on uh, a sort of honouring parents who, who are more Asian than you. Uh, it's called, so you can check that out on page 68. It, it's called Crazy Rich, maybe, Asians. Anyway, you can check that out on page 68 later. But yeah, come along and we'll, we'll talk more about that then. I'm not going to say too much about it now. Uh, but getting it wrong. Uh, let me tell you about Sandra. Uh, it's a cautionary tale, if you like, of making honouring parents ultimate. Now, Sandra was on a youth group leadership team that uh, I was leading uh, with a co-leader uh, at a Chinese church. This is quite a while ago. We were both young grads, not too long ago. We were about 22 or so. Uh, now, she was working. Uh, we were both working at the time. Uh, she was working for one of the big accounting or consulting firms. So, you know, a young professional. Now, as part of our team life together, we uh, had weeknight uh, team meetings. We'd gather at uh, different team members' houses. Now, we lived all over Sydney. Like, she... Sandra was from um, Yowie Bay in the Sutherland Shire, and I lived uh, with my parents still on the North Shore. That gives you an idea of how, how much travel was involved in this commitment. Uh, it was a high bar of leadership commitment. Uh, it cost quite a lot of time and energy to, to serve as a youth group leader in this context. Uh, you know, and we weren't carefree uni students anymore. We were getting used to full-time work and its rigours. Now, at one point in the year, Sandra sent a message uh, through my co-leader saying, well, my parents have told me, my parents have told me that I can't come to team meetings anymore. It's just making me too tired on top of work and so I can't lead youth group anymore. Now, what was going on here? Sandra was a, had committed to be a youth group leader. Sandra's parents, who were also part of the church, said no to her leading youth group. So Sandra says, no, I can't lead youth group. Now, it's a Chinese cultural context, so uh, respect for elders is a very high value. So I think Sandra's thinking here that, well, obeying my parents is an acceptable excuse to, to pull out of this commitment. But is that actually honouring Jesus? Is that actually honouring her parents as a follower of Jesus? Well, I think no. I think Sandra's made the mistake, as Rowan said, of making earthly family ultimate here and not putting God and his kingdom first. Now, sometimes there are good reasons to take a step back from commitments that we've made. Uh, but in this situation, I think Sandra um, hasn't even got to that point yet. She just said, my parents have said no, so I'm out. Um, and in a collectivist, sort of more hierarchical culture, uh, that's, it's very tempting to make obeying parents ultimate. It's often perhaps perceived to be the easiest path to take uh, instead of, as a 22-year-old adult, taking individual personal responsibility for her decisions. So that's one way I think we can get it wrong. Now imagine if, in all our diversity as an EU community, as the people of God, 
Uh, we really got alongside one another despite our differences and in our differences to help us try to get this right, uh, to honour our parents in a way which honours Jesus, continuing to put God and his kingdom first. Thanks, Ben. So we thought a little bit about in Christ childing. Let's think about in Christ marrying. How does being a follower of Jesus reshape our thoughts about marriage? Our culture tells us a lot of things about marriage, but if we're taking Jesus as the key to our relationships, then we need to put aside what our society or our family tells us about marriage, and we need to stop, start listening to actually what the one true living God tells us in the Bible about marriage. So what is the Bible's perspective on marriage? A few points there at the bottom of page 35 that I'm just going to whiz through. First of all, marriage is God's means through which humanity as a whole can achieve his purpose. I'm choosing those words very carefully. God, uh, marriage is God's means through which humanity as a whole can achieve his purpose. As we'll see, marriage is not necessarily the means through which God may use you as an individual to achieve his purposes. You don't need to be married for him to achieve his purposes in you or through you, but taken as a whole for humanity, marriage is part of God's general means through which humanity achieves God's purpose. What do I mean by that? Well, the account of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2 shows us that male-female marriage is a means through which God intends for us as a race to fulfill the task he has given us of filling the earth and subduing it. Marriage is the means by which that takes place. Secondly, the rest of the Bible affirms that marriage is a real blessing. Song of Songs is an erotic love poem of a young wife and her husband, a great celebration of sexual love. Proverbs 31 affirms the blessing that a godly wife is to her husband, and Ephesians 5 affirms the same thing in the other direction, the blessing a godly husband is to his wife. So it can be a great blessing. Yet Jesus himself tells us that marriage is temporary. Marriage is a this-life-only reality. In the new creation, I will not be married to Jenny. I won't be married, you won't be married, none of us will be married. The only marriage that exists in the new creation is between Jesus and the church. You can see in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, Jesus says, At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. So, no marriage for either men or women in the new creation. It won't be needed any longer. There no, will be no more need to fill the earth. And may I just say, the fact that marriage is temporary, that is a good thing. When marriage is hard or turns out to be bad, it is good to know that it is not forever, even as we work out how to handle a difficult marriage in the present. But even more, because marriage is temporary, but in Christ you will live forever, it shows that marriage and everything that goes with marriage, it doesn't define who you are and it's not necessary for you to live a full life. Our society says that if you're not hooked up with somebody, if you don't have a partner, you don't have the kids, the earthly family around you, then you have really missed out. You're not living the fullness of life as it should be lived. But Jesus shows us otherwise. 
He lived the full life unmarried. He teaches us that marriage is temporary and it is not peak living. That's the lie that the world keeps trying to sell us. And the reality is that marriage is often troubled. If you go right back to Adam and Eve in the garden, once sin enters the picture in Genesis chapter 3, their marriage becomes difficult. God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That is, instead of mutually serving one another in love, they will both seek to dominate the other. In Matthew chapter 19 verse 10, when Jesus tells his disciples that God is not usually in favour of divorce, his disciples respond with, well, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to get married. That is, if there's no easy exit, maybe just choose not to get married at all. The Apostle Paul has the same view in 1 Corinthians 7. When he's commending the stay single option, he says, those who marry will face many troubles in this life and I want to spare you this. And to the widows in chapter 7 verse 40 of 1 Corinthians, he says that in his judgment they will be happier if they don't get married. The final perspective to add here is that marriage will necessarily limit what you can do for the Lord Jesus and his kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about marriage as a distraction. He just says your interests are divided if you get married. The unmarried brother or sister in Christ, they're free to pursue the Lord's affairs. You can just get on and use the gifts and opportunities that the Lord opens up for you. But if you're married, that's not the same option for you. You are rightly concerned how to serve your wife or your husband and your interests are divided. Which brings us to some pretty important question, especially if you're in your early 20s. Should I get married? As a follower of Jesus, a key chapter to get your head around in answering that question, should I get married, is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, just by the way, if you want to get into it in more detail, there was an EU public meeting on this very question of singleness from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that happened in the last semester on campus. You can find it on the Sydney Uni EU podcast and have a listen to that in more detail if you would like. But if I was going to summarise what Paul says in that chapter on the question of whether to get married or not, I'd put it into three points which I've got there on your page. First of all, I think he says, it's good to stay unmarried for the sake of Jesus' kingdom. This is Paul's point that if you get married, you are necessarily distracted. Your interests must be divided if you're going to put your husband or wife's desires ahead of your own. So if you want to do more for Jesus' kingdom, if you want to be free to take up more of the opportunities he gives you, then it's good to stay unmarried like Paul was, like Jesus was, and indeed as many sisters and brothers in Christ have done and are doing. They choose to stay unmarried for the sake of the kingdom. But there is an important caveat to that, the second point there, but holiness, that is sexual holiness, is the more important issue. So in 1 Corinthians 7 verses 8 and 9, Paul says this, Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn. The issue here is self-control. Paul is addressing those who are sleeping around but who are thinking about staying unmarried. Paul's like, what are you thinking? 
Holiness is what really matters. And sleeping around with your fiancé or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or a prostitute or anyone you're not married to, that is not a way to honour Jesus. Honouring Jesus with your body when it comes to sex, that really matters. And having sex with someone you're not married to, that's not going to honour Jesus. So if you're not showing self-control, then get your sexual holiness in order first. Either marry the person or stop damaging them and you by being sexually intimate with them when you're not married to them. So Paul's conclusion then, the third point, is that we're free and right to marry, but it's even better with holiness to not. Paul's very clear. It's not a sin to get married, even if you can do more for Jesus' kingdom, if you choose not to. We have real freedom from Jesus when it comes to getting married or not. But he's also clear that while it's good to get married, it's even better, in his judgment, to not get married for all the reasons that he's given, provided you can walk in self-control and sexual holiness. As he says in verse 38, the one who gets married does right, but the one who does not marry does even better. So if you'd like to dig more into that issue, look up that EU podcast from earlier this year on 1 Corinthians 7 and the question of singleness. But to hear some more thoughts on this, I've asked Laura Southam, one of EU senior staff, to come and share her reflections on this question, should I get married or not? <laughs> Sounds like you're popular, Laura. Thanks, Rowan. Well, I'm really excited that we're actually taking a moment to ask this question. Uni is a kind of key moment in our life trajectory where a lot of us are contemplating the question of what the future will hold in lots of different ways, but also about our relationships. And as a single person myself, someone who actually loves being single, it grieves me a bit and it frustrates me a bit that we don't talk about this in a more robust way, often in Christian communities. So I'm excited that we're taking a moment now to consider it, and I hope it's a bit of a springboard for some interesting conversations for you going forward. As Ron said, there's freedom as we think about this topic, and there are key points from the Scriptures that do guide us. But what I want to do is take a moment to just, um, I guess, examine some of the assumptions that we still carry into this question and do that by painting a couple of scenarios for you to think about. Now, if this bears any resemblance to anyone, you know, in the room today, that is purely accidental. So I'm not, you know, narrowing in on you. But you might consider if anything about these situations resonates with something that you've been through or that you're thinking through at the moment. So firstly, think about Sharon. Sharon is not very experienced when it comes to dating relationships. And she doesn't really know what to say when her parents say, oh, like, aren't you looking to date a nice guy? Or her friends at church are like, you are so great. Anyone would be keen to date you. Because that's not really what's happened. And after she hears that for a while, she starts to think, oh, well, maybe there is something a bit weird about me. Maybe there's something about me that doesn't quite qualify or be up to scratch for someone to want to date me. And so she's sort of called it, really. She said, I think I'll just be single forever. And as she thinks about being content, you know, she said, yes, I'll pursue that. But under the surface, there's something going on that she probably doesn't want to talk to other people about, which is the thought of being open to or pursuing a relationship is kind of terrifying. She thinks, how do people actually do that? How do you let someone know that you're interested or respond to someone's interest in you? 
What is it like to be in a relationship with someone where they see what's really going on for you, your weird habits or your bad habits or your sin? What happens when you're not on the same page anymore? You have to end the relationship. How do you deal with that pain? And so partly she says, I just, I actually don't really want to get close to someone. Now, I don't know if you relate to that or not. And there's something for Sharon that is great. You know, she says, I want to pursue contentment in singleness. And I'm going to be intentional about that. But deep down, if there's a fear that's kind of mixed in with that, that has to be dealt with because fear is not a substitute for contentment. And contentment is going to be the sort of seedbed from which she's able to be happy for her friends in their relationships or concerned and supportive of friends when they're going through hard times or able to talk honestly about what's hard about being single sometimes as well. Sharon needs to know that she's loved by God and that helps her to be real about what's going on for her, even when it feels exposing and that fear isn't a good guide for the relationship decisions that we make. All right, a different scenario. Think about Joe. Joe's looking for a girlfriend. He was dating uh, someone for about 18 months, but a couple of months ago they broke up. And now he's hoping he can find someone else who might start a new relationship and see if he can make it work with. See, when Joe thinks about his future, he just imagines being married, having a family, their family home. Sometimes he sort of thinks about maybe I might go into ministry and that also makes him think, well, it'd be really great to be married, to have a wife who would encourage and support me and be alongside me in the ministry. He's had mentors in life who've said, you know what, you've just kind of got to grow up, get married, take on some responsibility, be a leader in that way. And so that's what he's aiming for. He's a bit worried, though, that he might miss out. He knows his other friends are also looking for women that they might approach to be, start a relationship with. And so he, as he kind of enters a room, he's scanning, saying, OK, who here is going to make great wife material? Who can I strike up a conversation with? Now, for Joe, there's nothing wrong with wanting to start a family. It's a good thing from God and can be a real blessing in all the contours of life. But I think what's happened for Joe is that he's just taken on a vision of what his life has to be or the one way that's going to make it work, whether he's in ministry or doing other work or really whatever life holds. And that might turn out to be a good thing, but I would encourage Joe to bring that vision to Jesus, to take Jesus' kingdom as that first guiding principle and not only just to kind of throw off the pressures of what other people say he should do with his life, but to remember it's the Holy Spirit who helps each of us to grow in any of our life circumstances, who helps us to mature and to become more like Christ. That way, maybe he can enter into conversations just more open to attend to the people in front of them and not thinking about how they might fit into the vision of his life. Okay, one last one. Denise. Now, Denise's friends kind of have a joke. She'll never not be in a relationship. She hasn't spent much time not dating over the last few years. But she also sort of makes it look easy. Lots of guys are interested in her. The thing is, under the surface, it's actually been very far from easy. Denise is terrified about the thought of being alone. Kind of in the present, but also in the future. She thinks, what if in 10 years, in 20 years, I'm not married? What if I failed if everyone's rejected me? 
And so the relationships that she is in are hard. She kind of squashes herself down a bit. She says, I want this person to like me. I'm going to moderate my humour. I'm going to be selective about the opinions that I share just so that they won't cast me off. Now, it's fair enough that Denise wants to be in a relationship, but we can see that her security has come from totally the wrong place. And the reality is, if she were to be married, you have to be vulnerable. You have to be real. You need to trust that the person accepts you as you are and wants you to grow for your sake. And so, I would encourage Denise, turn to Jesus. Find your love and security there. Don't buy the lie that someone else's choice of you is what is the foundation for your worth and what your future might look like. It is one of the great things about the Christian life that we have this freedom we are able to make about the choices we pursue. But the encouragement remains that we keep the kingdom first and Jesus' love for each one of us, no matter the exact shape of our lives, as our firm foundation. We're going to hear some more actually from Ben and Laura in a moment. So let's move on to think some more about in Christ marrying. Assuming I do decide to get married, and as far as it's up to me, whom should I marry? Well, two points there on your page. When Jesus was asked about marriage and divorce in Matthew 19, Jesus went back to Genesis chapter 2. Jesus makes it clear that God's intention is that marriage is one man with one woman in a permanent sexual relational union characterized by love and faithfulness that has ended only when one partner dies. And in that way, human marriage with those characteristics is meant to be a picture of God's relationship with his people or Jesus' relationship with the church, as we'll see later. Any departures from that pattern And there's lots of ways you could depart from that pattern. You could depart from that pattern, say, by being in a relationship that is not based on love, that lacks love, genuine love for each other, or that is characterised by unfaithfulness rather than faithfulness, or by divorce and remarriage for an illegitimate reason, or by marrying someone of the same sex, or by marrying multiple people at once. Any of those departures from that biblical pattern are not in line with God's intention for marriage as revealed in the Christian Bible. The other point to add is that the Bible encourages Christians to marry another believer, someone who is committed to following Jesus just as much as you are. So in 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul is giving advice to widows, he says, if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes only in the Lord. That is, they should Likewise, marry someone who is in Christ, which makes sense because if our primary allegiance is always to the Lord Jesus, it's really hard work being married to someone who has a different first allegiance than you do. It's hard enough being married to someone who does follow the Lord Jesus. But if you don't share that first love of Jesus in common, it doesn't matter how much else you share, there will always be that core part of you that you won't be able to share experientially with them. But if you'd like to get married, that still leaves the field pretty wide open. Someone who loves Jesus, someone who isn't married, someone who's of the opposite sex to you and to whom you're prepared to make lifelong promises to serve and to love. Is that all? Is there any other wisdom that might be useful? 
Well, in a moment, Laura and Ben are going to come back and we're going to hear from them some of their wisdom. But first of all, we're going to do a bit of a poll. This is a chance for all of us to say what we think is important in a marriage partner. And so the QR code's going to come up on the screen. Now, let me just say, this is entirely anonymous, entirely anonymous. So what will be most helpful is if you are completely honest about what you think is important. It's not what you think you should say is important. I just, this is a moment just anonymously to check our own values, actually. What, what do you think is really important in a marriage partner? So you've got a few minutes to fill this out. Then what's going to happen is the band's going to come back and lead us in song, and then I'm going to come back with the results with Ben and Laura. Should be fun. Well, thanks so much for filling out that little poll. Uh, we've got some of the results here that we can show you, which is uh, fun. Um, and we're going to try and get them thrown up on the screen as well. So I hope you can see that. There you go. Uh, so 392 managed to finish the survey. Well done. I'm not going to make a comment on that the blokes seem less competent to fill out a Google survey. <laughs> Let's just keep moving on. Um, uh, there's some really encouraging things we think to hear. So there were some questions like, and you know, this is tricky for James in the back. Um, someone, now can we go to the one about, there's one about uh, people who love, uh, there was a question about loved, loving Jesus. Someone who loves Jesus more than they love Jesus. Yeah, that's it. That was encouraging. I think that's just really wise, right? You want, to, you want to have somebody who has their primary focus on the Lord Jesus and out of having a kingdom focus on Jesus, that out of that flows their love for you. That's the way you want to set it up. So that's great. Laura, some things that stood out to you? Some things that stood out to me, a couple of other questions that scored um, kind of highly about um, wanting someone who was ambitious, um, if we scroll through to that, um, there's one about pe wanting people who are ambitious, and that scored pretty highly overall. I think it's the Might be a bit tricky to find. Um, there, we, there go. we go. So sort of on the um, upper side, a lot of people, that was sort of something appealing or interesting. There was also a question there about someone who has leadership qualities, and maybe those are kind of connected a bit in our kind of cultural ideas. I think that was just interesting because maybe we can sort of say, look, we're from Sydney Uni, ambition, leadership, that's kind of high on our agenda in general. But I think there can also be a little bit of baggage about that in our Christian communities that um, kind of leaders are the most godly people or um, that there's a specific shape relationships have to take, that they need strong leadership of a certain kind. And I think that's worth just us reflecting on and examining. Leadership's not a bad thing at all. Um, and probably there's lots of people here who do have leadership qualities. Um, but I think things like humility and love as kind of the foundation rather than leadership or ambition or being kind of a, a type A personality, that's actually pretty significant. That's the stuff that um, kind of happens behind closed doors, not about public performance or other people's assessment of how you change the world. Yeah. Ben, something that stood out to you? Uh, I was glad to see 
that someone to whom I'm physically attracted scored quite highly. Uh, and I think that's because, uh, like, I think if you have freedom about choosing your marriage partner, and not everyone in the world does, but if we do have that, then I think it, it's okay to use that freedom and to try and, and actually use that freedom to make, make things easier uh, for yourself. Uh, and, you know, as, as Rowan said, uh, marriage is a, is a sexual union. And so, yeah, if, if there is someone you're physically attracted to or someone uh, who at previous Ancons, when I was a student, they put it this way, you know, someone who makes your bacon sizzle, <laughs> that kind of thing, <laughs> as a waiter. Sorry to any vegans out there. Sorry, that probably doesn't work for you. I don't think we should ever say that ever again. <laughs> apologies, apologies. Uh, oh, anyway. I want to ask a question about that, Ben. Uh, not yeah, about yeah. the weird phrase you've got, but um, but um, uh, I love. Look, bacon. honestly, I mean, I I get it that you know, um, physical attraction is a good thing under God, and you know, rightly expressed within a marriage relationship, that's awesome. However, the reality is you're going to be married to this person potentially for 50, 60, 70 years. They are not going to be as attractive even in 20 years physically as they are now, let alone in 50 or 60 years. Well, yeah, it depends on what you mean by attraction and, and how, I guess, your uh, desires and, I guess, are ordered, really. I think, you know, something I've found is that as... as if we keep listening to God in His Word about what actually is attractive uh, and letting that critique our culture and what they think is attractive, then that actually leads to a deeper, long-lasting um, yeah, physical and sexual attraction within marriage and within that, the safety of that commitment of marriage uh, that I think is actually m- much more satisfying than perhaps what our culture's um, might point to. Right. So you're saying actually that God through his spirit and by his word actually shapes what I find attractive. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So it's not just that, you know, look, I, I once upon a, I had hair, right? And I'm just... <laughs> yeah, I've seen the photos, Rowan. Would, would Jenny true. have married me when I, you know, had no hair? I mean, I don't know. But hope, hopefully, hopefully actually what has been attractive to her are not this, but, but this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, over time, that it's people's character and their heart and their values and their vision, that that actually is what is deeply attractive about that person and that out of that attraction and valuing and, and respecting and honouring that, out, then you find that you do love the whole person. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, okay. Can I say one other thing? I just think... Body image and insecurity is a huge feature of relationships. And so we need to get really real about um, not just appreciating that physical attraction is a good gift, but also that we're influences influenced by heaps of things that have got us all sorts of twisted about it as well. Social media and all the um, images that we just take in daily, they're just not real life. And so I think this is um, an important part of relationships, but 
Um, we should be careful about thinking we're neutral in our assessment and that takes a bit of discipleship. I think having trusted Christian brothers and sisters around us is really significant both for kind of dealing with body image issues and um, like trusting that God's made us good, not because we're airbrushed or um, super popular online. Like those images are not trustworthy and so, you know, I want to affirm this but I also want to put a big warning label on just what we're being trained to think about. Yeah, Because it, it, I think it's made us more superficial so that we do just evaluate people terribly on just what they look rather than actually going, what does God actually encourage me to value here? Yeah. Um, the, the fact that they... I mean, I, I just know f- for me, um, I'd known Jenny for a while, but if it was one particular conversation we had where what was apparent to me in that conversation wasn't, wasn't her looks or the way she was dressed that day. Or what was apparent to me in that conversation was her real genuine heart to serve the youth group kids in her church when all of her peers were abandoning this church and going to the cool church down the road. Just that came out in a conversation. I just thought, oh, you're a standout. Like, how, like I need to get to know you more. Um, that's, that was the moment of attraction. Do you know what I mean? Like, and suddenly, then I liked everything about her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so passages like um, Proverbs 31, uh, the wife of noble character, and yeah, just, just general godliness passages. Um, they're the things I think we look to, to to reshape our desires about what we find attractive. Mm. Um, ben, you made a comment before, just off stage, about pe- the parenting stuff. Yeah, so if we can bring up the parenting... You know, so someone my parents respect, someone who my parents... Hang on. I think I just said the same thing. Anyway. Um, and, yeah, I think what I found interesting here... Uh, yeah, go back one more. Somebody my parents respect, I think, and somebody who respects my parents. Um, on those first two... Let's go back a couple. Yeah, these two. Uh, yeah, these both scored quite highly across the board somebody who my parents respect and then somebody who respects my parents, yep. Uh, but the next one was much more even, I noticed. So somebody whose parents get along with my parents. And here again, I think freedom comes in and the freedom for cultures to be different here and for both sort of to be okay. Uh, I just know that in the more collectivist cultures, perhaps Asian ones, uh, that uh, parents are actually quite a, a big part of the decision. Um, can my parents get along with their parents? And you know, I've been I've been surprised a little bit by some international students who, where that becomes a deal breaker. Like even if they're getting along with a person, but if the parents they're also talking and something, you know, uh, breaks down there, or for whatever reason, then they actually stop dating and yeah, it's off the table. Uh, so yeah, I think that's just a, another interesting uh, thing to note that culture is active in this space. And for us as, you know, a diverse Christian community to, to just uh, be aware of that and uh, yeah, as, as we kind of walk through this, you know, often very personal and, and can be challenging um, area of life together. Yeah. Great. Thanks, guys. So continuing with this topic 
of in Christ marrying? What does it look like to be husband and wife in Christ? How does Jesus shape our approach to being married? Now, I know there aren't many married people in the room, but many here will probably get married, and every Christian here should care about the health of marriages around them and to have a clear vision of what God would have marriages be like. So whether you're married or not, or intend to get married or not, this is actually important stuff for us as a community as we follow Jesus together. So to stick with 1 Corinthians 7 just for a moment, Paul's advice to all of us, not just to those who are married, is to keep our priorities right, particularly in light of the fact of Jesus' return. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29 to 31. He says, This is what I mean, brothers and sisters, the time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they didn't own anything, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for this world in its current form is passing away. That has very deep and far-reaching implications. The world is passing away. Jesus is coming back. And the time left is short, compared with all eternity that is coming. So therefore, as followers of Jesus, we don't dive in fully to the things of this world, because we know that this is not all there is, that this is passing away. The future with Jesus shapes how I do the present. That affects how I think about marriage. So when Paul says, so from now on, those who have a wife or a husband should be as though they had none, he does not mean live as though you were a single person. He can't mean that because in the very next paragraph he says, if you're married, you rightly should be seeking to please your spouse. What he does mean, I think, is that you should have the same future perspective as someone who's not married. The unmarried person is rightly concerned about how to please the Lord and if, you're get, if you get married, that needs to be part of your focus as well. Don't get so engrossed in this world stuff, like marriage, that you lose perspective and muck up your priorities. I do see a lot of people getting obsessed with all sorts of this-life things, whether it be relationships or marriage or how they look or their career or their popularity or where they're going on holidays or their kids, or their own happiness, or their own struggles. Those are all this world things, and real things. But God is asking us to lift our eyes and live in the present in the light of the future. Jesus is coming back. The form of this world is passing away. So whether married or not, we keep our priorities in tune with that reality. Second thing to say about being a husband or wife in Christ is that a Christian marriage is meant to be a reflection of the mutual love of Jesus and his church. I say meant to be because we often fall short of the mutual love God calls us to as husbands and wives. And too often our marriages are anything but Christian in the way we either threaten or abuse or mistreat one another. So let's be clear. The reason abuse happens is because we are acting in the flesh. But we are, not, we, are, we are no longer in the flesh. We are now in the spirit. We're meant to put to death the misdeeds of the body. But tragically, many marriages and many Christian marriages 
People in the marriage are still offering their body as instruments of evil within their own marriage. Now, this very passage we're about to look at from Ephesians 5 has too often been used as a weapon in marriages to abuse a spouse and to wrongly justify such abuse. So we need to tread carefully here and look carefully at what the Bible actually says and to whom it says it. So I've printed out the passage from Ephesians 5 there on your page. You can see how Paul starts in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Just even pause there. God's intention for the whole community is they submit to one another. And they do that to honour Jesus. Paul then covers a list of typical relationships within a first century household. So he addresses wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. Each of these is to submit to the other. It's not a one-way street. Children submit to their parents by obeying them. Parents submit to their children not by obeying their children. No, they, they submit to their children by not exasperating their children, by not using their own parental power to serve themselves, but to raise their children in a way that pleases Jesus. There is a mutual submission, though it has a particular shape to it within the parent-child relationship. Similarly for slaves and masters, there's a mutual submission, but with a particular shape appropriate to that relationship. And here for wives and husbands, there is mutual submission with a particular shape to it. Let's have a look at that shape and notice throughout how Jesus is the reference point from verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, let's treat carefully here. First, notice, this is addressed to wives. It's a word to wives. It's not a word to their husbands. Husbands are not told, make sure your wife submits to you. That is never what the Bible says. This is a voluntary submission from a wife to her husband. Voluntary submission. And it is only ever voluntary, never forced nor demanded by her husband. Second, there's a shape to the husband-wife relationship that is patterned on Jesus' relationship with the church. It's all there in verse 23. Jesus is the head of the church, which is his body, the body of which he's the saviour. Between Jesus and the church, there's a mutual love and a mutual submission. The church submits to Jesus in everything because he's our head and we are his body. And Jesus sacrifices himself for the body, the church, in order to save her. Now, husbands don't save their wives. Jesus is our only saviour. But that same closeness of relationship exists between husband and wife. They are one flesh. And so husbands must love their wives as their own body, for they are one flesh. You can see how then Paul continues in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does for the church. For we are all members of his body. 
For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Doing marriage in Christ means conducting your marriage for Christ, that is out of reverence for him, and conducting it patterned on Christ. Mutual love, mutual self-sacrifice, mutual selflessness. This is not an isolated passage. You can chase up other passages that I've listed there which portray the same shape for Christian marriage. So how does this play out in practice? We asked Keith and Sarah Condy, a Christian couple who've been married for many years. They've been involved in various Christian ministries, including creating their own marriage course, to share their thoughts on what sacrificial headship and respectful submission patterned on Jesus looks like in practice. And they've recorded this video for us. It's good to join you for a fireside chat. We're Keith and Sarah Conti, and we've actually been married over 40 years, and we have three adult children, two of whom have been to Anaheim. We co-direct a mental health and pastoral care institute for a women's organisation, Christian women's organisation called Mary Andrews College. We've been doing that for a number of years now. And basically what we're trying to do is support churches in their work of caring for people, particularly those experiencing mental health challenges. We actually put together um, a marriage course. You might think, what's marriage got to do with mental health? Well, actually quite a lot. And, um, and at the preventative end, anything you can do to strengthen marriages brings a real benefit, both to the parties in the marriage, as well as the children and the, um, the, wider, the wider church. Over many years, we've talked with many couples at our kitchen table or in other places just about marriage, helping couples who are stuck. This particular topic has come up a number of times. Yes, yeah, it has actually, yeah. yes. I suppose one of the first things we like to say is that um, this is not the only thing we need to remember when it comes to marriage. The Bible says a lot about marriage and it does talk about headship and submission. But um, let's not forget the other things. And we think, sort of comes out fairly strongly in our course, the most significant um, aspect of a marriage, the way God has designed it, is for um, there's this relationship to be close and well-connected. Really, um, a picture of God's design, I think, for marriage is a picture of intimacy and close connection. I think you see that in Genesis 2. Um, often we talk about Genesis 2, 23, 24, but verse 25 talks about the man and the woman being naked and feeling no shame. And that's a beautiful picture, I think, of what God desires a marriage to be like, that sort of deep, close, intimate connection. In practice, in practice. I think it's a good question. And as I've thought about it, it's not something that we think about a lot um, or talk about. I actually have thought more, and I think the reason for that is that I have a husband who loves me and he has not ever made, um, he's never ever said to me, Sarah, you need to submit. Sarah, you need to obey me. That's just not part of our language. And so um, I think somewhat naively I've thought that all men are like Keith, but sadly that's not the truth. 
And so for many couples, that's not um, the reality in their relationship. Um, but if I was to think more deeply um, or to say more about um, submission, because that's my part, it's really how I think about Keith and how I talk about him. Is I respect him and how I treat you, yes. So I think that it comes out in that way. And I think a lot of people um, think that submission and um, headship is about making decisions, but I think that's quite a narrow way of looking at it. And I don't think there's a single decision that it would be that kids made. We've talked together. Um, we do a lot of chilling and throwing. Things, don't we? I think yeah. I think when it comes to decision making, um, I've never felt that it's my responsibility as husband to make the decision. And also initiating. So I think I would initiate lots of things. So I might say, why don't we pray about this? Or why don't we read the Bible? Or why don't we plan a holiday? Or I actually plan the holiday. Because to be honest, if I was to wait for Keith to do that and for Keith to initiate that, we would never have had a holiday. So you're much better. But that's that's because that's me, and that's what I bring to our relationship. Um, and, and I don't feel like that's your being, you know, no. overturning anything in, in our relationship or trying to take control in our relationship. I just feel like we've got different strengths, and we try and work together. I suppose we see a marriage as a real partnership where. We each bring different things. And, and they sort of strengthen us to do life together really well. And, you know, there's, I actually think that there are things that we don't agree about. There are a lot of things we don't agree about. So how do we, how do we work our way through there? I think we actually try and talk about them in a way that doesn't make each other feel angry and try and understand each other's perspective. And you're very good at doing that. You know, you do try and get below the surface what might be going on here. Why do I feel yeah. this way about it? Why? And then you try and share well, how you feel about it. And right. then we sort of work out how we're going to deal with that issue. And some issues are easier to solve than others. I think we both have issues that we've, had, we've lived with for 40 years and we're still married. So we've managed to kind of figure out how to do that. And I suppose I want to say, yes, it does. And I mean, by definition, I think that's what the terms imply, head, um, headship, submission. But, um, but it's really interesting what Jesus says about authority, because you go to Mark 10, and authority is all about serving others and doing good for others. Loving it. So I think you even see this in Paul's language in Ephesians 5, where the command to the husband is love your wife. Um, in what way? As Christ loved the church. As you as you as you love your own body, he says. And, and I think this is profound, I think it's very, very significant and profoundly countercultural actually in Paul's time. For him to actually say to a husband, love your wife. I think he chose that word very carefully. You know, he could have said a whole lot of other things, but he said love. So, so I feel like, I mean, I, I like to think in terms of when it comes to headship and submission, um, there's, a, there's an always and there's a never. 
And I think the always is, my responsibility as head in that marriage is always to seek him to be loved, loving to Sarah. Now, I, I don't always get that right, but I think that's, that's my responsibility. So if headship means anything for me, it's not about making all the decisions. It's not about even initiating everything. But I do feel I have the primary responsibility to initiate love in our relationship. Now, that's not to say Sarah often initiates love in our relationships, you know, in a whole lot of ways. But, but I really feel the bottom line is, particularly I think when we're not getting on, um, you know, we have a bit of conflict about something. I, and I think I've done this not so well at times. But it's my responsibility to work at you know, how do we sort this out? How do we how do we restore the quality of our relationship? So I would so that's the always. And implied in that always is so I'm always called to be loving her. Um, going along with that, I think, is um, Sarah's submission. I, I can is the never. I can never compel that. So I can never demand things of her. I can never um, dominate her or say, you must do this, or pull rank, so to speak, and say, yep, I'm the boss, you must do as I say. I don't think I've ever done that. No, and I'll say he hasn't. And so I don't think that, that's what it is. And for, for that, I am very thankful to God. And it has blessed me. It's blessed our children and hopefully it bless our grandchildren. I have to say here that there are relationships where the husband has put rank um, in things. For example, the husband has said, you have to have sex with me. I want to have sex tonight. Um, or we are going to do this this way. And I actually think that that's really not what is being talked about in this passage and to use this passage of scripture to justify that behavior is wrong yes. and there's so much else in the bible that counters that behavior yes. very strongly and i would love married couples to look at other passages of scripture and take them much more to heart we have seen um, examples of this this teaching being we think not just misused, but abused um, within the context of a you know, we've, we've dealt with couples where there's been abuse in the relationship, and unfortunately, we've seen Christian men justify abuse on the basis of um, a misreading of a text like the Christian's Bible. So, I have talked with um, women where this, this submission um, question in the pattern of their relationship it's been done badly um, where the wife feels like she's been made to behave in a certain way her needs aren't um, she feels like her husband doesn't really pay attention to how she feels about certain things and to me when I see when she talks about things such as that that is a flag to me that the, there's patterns in the relationship that are unhealthy and I would be encouraging that wife to get help, um, to speak to someone professionally 
Are you saying that a wife, in a sense, can be too submissive, can be submissive to behaviour that she shouldn't be submissive to? Yeah, I think that she feels like she should be and that she can, um, that what she wants or would like to see happen, she doesn't have a voice in the relationship. So when so that, when she can't even acknowledge, um, here's what I think, here's what I feel, do you think it's appropriate in a marriage? And I agree with you, Belinda, it's, a, it's very appropriate that um, a woman can speak up for her wishes and her desires and um, not that's there's nothing selfish about that. That's one of the things that actually brings a blessing to the relationship when the two people can be open and honest. I mean, you know, there's so many different ways of doing doing life. You know, yes. like do you have a pet or not have a pet? How do you pack the dishwasher? How do you what meals do you have? You pack, you pack it correctly. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, then there's what meals you're going to eat or do you, um, and or where do you shop, how do you shop? And there's lots of things where two, a man and a woman can think very differently about them. And if the woman, the wife, feels like everything they do is according to how her husband thinks it should be done, I think that's a warning sign that it's, there's unhealthy patterns there. Yes, yeah, well, she, she doesn't really the voice in that relationship. We're coming to the end. And I was just discussing off stage whether I include this section or not. Um, because, you know, time-wise, we probably should end now. But then I really feel like it's important that I say these next few things. Because an obvious and important question, which is there on your book, is... What happens when the other person doesn't love me in marriage like they're supposed to? Does God still expect me to keep going when they're not doing their part? And the reason I want to just take a few extra minutes just to address this is because of the horrifying reality of family abuse, including within marriages, in what's known as intimate partner violence. Husbands abuse their wives, and sometimes wives abuse their husbands. It can be physical violence can be verbal abuse or emotional or psychological. It can be coercive control, where the partner is monitored or controlled or restricted with limited access or sometimes no access to family or friends or finances. And over the last 10 to 15 years, we've become increasingly aware of just how horrifyingly prevalent such abuse is in marriages across Australia, including within Christian marriages. And sometimes this passage, Ephesians 5, is weaponized usually by a husband, to force compliance or obedience from his wife. As I said before, this is just not on. It's just not a right use of this passage. In fact, it's the very opposite of what God is telling you to do as a husband or wife. The bit for husbands to pay attention to is not the bit addressed to wives. It's when God addresses the husbands that you're meant to be paying attention and where God tells you, put your own desires aside and sacrificially love your wife. Put her needs ahead of your own because that's what Jesus did for you. So how do we live out this word from God when our marriage partner isn't doing their part? Five brief things to say. First, the promise we make in marriage to love the other person is unconditional. Husbands don't promise to sacrificially love their wives only when their wives are respectful or reasonable. And wives don't promise to submit to their husbands only when their husbands are being selfless. We actually make unconditional promises. 
Now, that's already a challenge for us because we like some quid pro quo system. I'll be nice to you if and only if you're nice to me. If you're not nice to me, then I'll repay an eye for an eye. I'll give back as good as I get or maybe worse. That's life in the flesh, not life in the spirit. That's not following the way of Jesus. The spirit of Jesus is we love even our enemies. My love for you is not conditional on how you treat me, just as Jesus' love for me wasn't and isn't conditional on the perfection of my love for him. My love for you, including in marriage, is not conditional on you doing your part. However, second, while my love for you is unconditional, it is not unlimited. What I mean is that my love for you does not mean I will do whatever you ask of me. Because my ultimate loyalty is not to you as my wife or husband, but it's to the Lord Jesus. If you ask me to turn a blind eye to your illegal activity or to your God-dishonouring activity, I am not going to do that. I'm not going to stay silent while you hurt people, while you manipulate people, while you damage those you are meant to love. I'm not going to stay silent while you break the law, while you take without consent while you dishonour our Lord Jesus behind closed doors. Putting your desires ahead of my own or submitting to you in everything does, does have limits. Like obeying parents has limits. There is a line. Which brings me to point three. How you love a wicked person who has broken your trust, that requires a lot of wisdom. Love's goal is never revenge, we leave vengeance up to Jesus, the judge. Love's goal is to see the other person genuinely repent so there can be genuine reconciliation. Now, genuine repentance is much, much, much more than just a moment of mere regret. When someone has been abusive, they are often filled with momentary remorse and regret. But often it's only momentary. A day, a week, a month later, the same abusive behaviour returns. That's not repentance. That's a moment of regret. Repentance is a genuine change of heart and behaviour and it is demonstrated over months and years, not mere days and weeks. When someone has been abusive, demonstrating that genuine repentance will take a long time. And part of what love looks like in seeking to encourage repentance in an abusive partner means involving the authorities and getting help to remove yourself from the situation. Separation and involving the authorities is what wise love looks like when trust has been seriously broken. That's how we love a wicked partner. Involving authorities and separation. And as Jesus' people together, we have to help our sisters and brothers who are caught in these awful situations. We have to help them to go to the authorities. We have to help them to separate from their spouse for as long as it takes, with the hope and the prayer that the other person will realise before God just how serious this sin is and that they start the long road of repentance. Fourth. We're talking here about what love looks like in serious matters of abuse. We are not talking about the everyday moments of selfishness. 
Jenny and I have been married for 27 years. Pretty much every day, we have to respond to something selfish in the other person. Because both of us are still growing in putting off the flesh with its sinful desires and habits. Showing grace and mercy to each other of the regular everyday selfishness, that is just part of being married. We respond to that sort of selfishness in just the way that the Bible encourages us to. We extend grace. We show undeserved kindness to one another. We're patient. We seek to speak up, but with gentleness rather than anger. We seek to reflect Jesus' patience and grace towards each of us in our dealings with each other. We don't jump immediately to separation and call the authorities. I'm calling the police, that's it. You didn't wipe down the kitchen bench again. Not like We just need to exercise wisdom in how we respond to different types of sin in each other. So don't confuse the everyday with the wicked, with the abusive. Fifth and finally, as we've already discussed, marriage can be hard. That's why Jesus' disciples said, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Well, maybe. There is no guarantee that if you get married, your marriage will be easy. Marriage is a profound commitment. You don't know what the future will bring, and yet you're promising to love this person for better or worse. It's a promise to love them for life, like Jesus and his church. So if you choose to pursue marriage, do so with eyes open, ready to love like Jesus and for Jesus. But know this too, in all of our relationships, all the different family relationships we talked about today, Jesus never calls us to do something without giving us the power to do it. With the power of his spirit in you, with the guidance of his word in the Bible, and with the encouragement of his people, your family in Christ around you, you can live a life of love, no matter how tricky or how much wisdom you need. Jesus makes it possible for you to live for him and to live like him. That's true in all of our earthly family relationships. As we seek to love and honour our parents, as we think about marriage and seek to love in a way that honours him, as he remains the example, we'll follow. We're going to be led in prayer and then we'll sing a song and then morning tea.